Folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is March 19, 2014, and this is episode 1318 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, seems like a long time since we had a show, and that's because I was out of Permaculture Voices, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I'm going to tell you guys some really exciting things going on in the world, and some really encouraging things going on in the world, and tell you about the uh, the people that I met, the people that I talked to, and how awesome um, things really are starting to become, at least in some areas, which is encouraging because there's other areas of the world, the planet, uh, uh, the country that are, you know, Exactly the opposite of awesome. Like, unawesomeness is uh, is pretty monumentous in some ways. Anyway, uh, before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? How about Berkey Water Filtration Systems? The best uh, water filtration system I know of on the market uh, personally. It's a passive gravity-fed system. It means there's no moving parts. There's nothing to break. Uh, you can filter thousands and thousands of liters of water on one set of filters. Uh, the filters could actually be washed and used uh, longer than they're spec'd. As long as they're still flowing, they're still working, uh, right up until the point where they stop flowing, then you know you need to replace them. Uh, you can put a couple, three filters in one uh, Berkey system, or you can do what I do with mine. Uh, I filled mine up with uh, with six filters, and that means that my my flow rate is much faster than just with two, so I'm able to process a lot of water quickly. We filter all our water in our Berkey, and uh, when people come here and try the water, they're pretty amazed with how awesome it tastes. And if you're going to get a Berkey, why would you get it from anybody but the Berkey guy? Don't get your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy. Check out Jeff's website for Berkeys and other great things for your preps at Directive21.com. Again, Directive21.com. Next up today, Harvest Eating, Chef Keith Snow. Awesome dude that will teach you to make cooking a life skill. He has awesome seasonings, uh, especially his uh, Montana steak seasoning. He's changed it from Montreal. Uh, and I, I'm glad he did because Montreal steak seasoning conjures up uh, images of that stuff from McCormick that's not really very good. And his steak seasoning's amazing. Uh, I cook with it all the time. Low and slow barbecue, uh, northern Italian. Check out some of his seasonings. Check out his podcast. Check out his website. Uh, get a copy of his book. Chef Keith is just awesome. You can find his website at harvesteating.com. Next up today, our MSB discounter of the day. Uh, for those of you that are members of our member support brigade, you guys get discounts not just from a lot of our sponsors, but from a lot of other companies. Because frankly, there's no more room left for sponsors. So every day I feature one company that's giving a discount to you guys there. Today's the Soil Cube. You know, every year that you go out and start plants and you're sitting there with all those little pots and some of them are cracked and some of them are broken and you're trying to, you know, scare them up and all. And what if you could just take dirt and make it into a cube and grow stuff in it and put it straight in the ground? That's what you can do with a soil cube and you can get 10% off at soilcube.com if you're an MSB member. The discount code for soil cube, uh, harvest eating and Berkey guy, all those folks give you discounts is available in your website if you are an MSB member under benefits. Uh, nice segue into the MSB. So if you are not yet an MSB member, why not? 
I'm serious. I mean, if you are buying stuff in the preparedness world, from long-term storage food to stuff for homesteading and planting your own, you know, planting your gardens and everything in between, from tactical to practical, from guns to gardens and back, um, I've got discounts for you that'll probably save you more money than you'd spend on the MSB. Give it a shot. Uh, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members or the member support brigade banner, and uh, you find out more and sign up there. Remember, I take. Uh, online payments through PayPal. I also do take cash, check, money order by by mail for those who don't want to use that. And I take Bitcoin. Uh, if you actually just ever hear an episode of the show and you think that was awesome and you want to tip me like a buck, there's a tip thing on the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. You can tip me in Bitcoin. Uh, somebody tipped me in Bitcoin the other day. It came out to about uh, 20 cents. Still glad to have it. And that's one way that if you don't want to join the MSB or you just think something's cool and you want to acknowledge it, that you can do so with uh, with Bitcoin. Anyway, um, let's go from there into the year that was the episode, 1318. A lot of death going on in 1318. I'm going to talk about one particular kind of death that uh, had repercussions that people didn't, you know, people today don't really even understand. The Great Bovine Pestilence. Now remember, there have been huge crop shortages in the last couple of years due to a global cooling event because a volcano blew up. And um, they're, they're starting to come out of the problems with that. But yet, the misery continues. Bovine, of course, meaning cattle. So, The heavy rains are intermittent now, and this has set up conditions for disease. The moraine, a medieval term meaning death, is a catch-all phrase for any disease affecting livestock. It could mean hoof-and-mouth disease to anthrax. The great bovine pestilence will kill 62% of all the cattle in England and Wales in the next two years. This means more than just the loss of meat production and milk. Up to four oxen are needed to pull the heavy plows they used in the Middle Ages. With the loss of oxen, food production has just taken another uh, nosedive right when they need it the most. My take by Alex Shrug, who makes all of these wonderful uh, history entries for us at the TSP Wiki, tspwiki.com. I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but farming was primitive at this time, and when the weather was good, they were barely getting by. Food production was enhanced by using fertile soils near forest lands, but they were still using the old methods of farming. Old even for George Washington. That is old. And they didn't know what germs were. Murrains were like magic spells to them. The fact the word murrain will come to be associated with magic as a magic curse. It will also be the word they use to translate the Bible in English. It will be one of the plagues of God will set upon the Egyptians, the death of cattle. Um, here's my take on this. I think that we don't realize how interconnected systems are and how the loss of one thing can lead to the loss of the other. And this is just an example of that. You've got to think about it this way. What happened to these people in losing 62% of their cattle at a time when the cattle was the plow? What if right now something happened and 50% of the motors of all the combines and tractors on our farms exploded? You know, for whatever reason. They just didn't work this year. And you couldn't just crank out new ones. You just couldn't get them running again. You think about a cow to get up to the size to pull a plow. Uh, it takes several years. So for a couple of years, you just got to get by with what you have. And what we can learn from that in our society is look around you and think about how there are many things that if they fail will affect things that don't look to be directly related. And that's just another reason to be prepared. And with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show, my uh, review and thoughts on the Permaculture Voices Conference. 
Um, I mean, just first, flat out, right from the gate, let me tell you that Diego Footer hit a home run with the Voices Conference. And I say this from a standpoint of let's let's take permaculture and uh, you know you know farming and and food production and all of that stuff. Just put it on the shelf for a minute, and let's look at it purely from running a conference of this size with the scope of people, the number of attendees, uh, the type of speakers that were brought in. Let's, it doesn't matter if they're in permaculture or if they were race car drivers, right? I mean, you're talking about top talent in the industry. A lot expected of a show like this. A lot that could go wrong. And I have to say it went off without a hitch. I have to say of all the conferences that I've ever been involved with, going back to my you know conventional business days in technology, uh, having been a speaker probably more than 100 times at, at different events, at least I would say 100 times, maybe more close like 200 times, uh, that I've been a speaker featured at events and conferences and technology things over the years. Um, never have I seen a conference run this well. I've seen exhibitions, trade shows, things like that run at this level, but they've been shows that are so big that, you know, Cisco was there with a booth. They were paying $50,000 for just the booth space. That, that to, to see the bang on scheduling, uh, coordination, keeping people happy. It doesn't mean there's not room for improvement. Um, but as far as the objective set and the objectives met and the expectations set and the expectations met of the attendance, I've never seen anybody do as good a job. So when Diego came out on day one and said, not only is this my first shot at Voices, this is my first event, uh, I was pretty blown away. Uh, absolutely fantastic job. And it just opens up the question to those of you out there, especially those of you who are like, I don't really care about permaculture. How many opportunities like that are out there to take a market that's evolved but yet doesn't have anything like a conference to go out and set up an event at a place to go out and get the best people, the most well-known people in that event, bring them in, make the upfront investment, and then sell out 600 people at over $600 a ticket. That's, that is awesome. I mean, that is just awesome. The, the next time this conference is done, it will sell out, I, I predict, very, very quickly. You could have gotten a ticket to get into Voices as, as, as little as a month ago. The next time around, he'll probably have to find a bigger venue, let a couple hundred more people in, but just on the repeat attendance alone, this thing's going to go bam because he did such a good job and because everybody had such a good experience. There are some places I think things could be stepped up a little bit, and I'll even talk about them today, but they're not criticisms, they're critiques. Criticisms are, you screwed this up, you screwed this up, you screwed this up, this was wrong. Critiques are, boy, you could really even take it higher if, right? So uh, when I do talk about that, understand there's, there's zero criticism of the event itself and anything Diego did, home run. He is going to be making um, all the speakers' presentations available on video, um, downloadable across the Internet. I will buy it. I was there, and I will buy it. There were four tracks at some times running at the same time, and I was going, do I go to this one, do I go to this one, do I go to this one, do I go to that one? And then there were even sometimes there was like two, three, four tracks running, 
and I could have picked one to go to, and I just found a chair and just kicked back and checked email or did the One Gorilla podcast I did for you guys or something like that, where I just needed a break. I just couldn't take anymore between having to talk to people, and that don't take that wrong if you were one of the people I was talking to, but just when you talk to that many people for that many days for that long, you get tired and you need breaks. So there were, there were times I didn't go to sessions because I just needed a break. And, um, man, awesome, awesome stuff. So I'll buy the downloads. And what Diego said he's going to do is sell the downloads at a, a severe discount to those who attended the conference compared to those that didn't. I think that the price for the video to non-attendees is going to be somewhere in the range of 300 bucks. Money well spent. If you care about developing your skill set and changing the way you think to the point that you can actually make some money, It's 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 stupid cheap if that's how you're taking it. If it's from a, just a pure educational enjoyment standpoint, fair price. I mean, you're talking about four days of speakers and way more hours than you would think because, again, you have tracks with four speakers at the same time. Speaking at the same time for an hour each, that's four hours of content from one track from one day. Um, the amount of editing that will go into this and all, I don't think he could afford to solve for less than that. And, again, I think it's... I think it's stupid cheap. Again, especially if you're thinking I want to build a business. Because the stuff from Joel Salton alone, and I didn't even see all of Joel Salton's stuff, more on that in a bit, um, because I was actually speaking opposite from Joel on one of his tracks. So I, I, just to see what he said there, I would buy it because of what I learned from him in his other talks. And ways to think about making money from farming that would have never occurred to me. And I have a pretty good business head, as most of you know. So I think I would look for that, guys. And, and if I can negotiate any kind of a discount for you guys uh, that didn't attend, you know I'll do it. Anyway, um, my overall sentiment is this. I had said Voices would be my last major public appearance at a third-party event. I was going to get off the road. I was going to stop traveling and focus on doing workshops at my home, do this next big one, and then you know scale them back to 20 headcount workshops, four or five a year, if you want to see me, come here. Um, if, if he does voices again, and if he extends the invitation to me to go back, which I think he would, um, I will go back. I, I may end up making voices the one event I do every year. That's how good it was. And that, that says something about the caliber of the people and the event and what I learned and what I got out of it. Um, I do want to talk about something that I noticed at this event more than any other event. It's because there were so many people in this audience that were educated. And what I mean by educated is really educated. This I've been to permaculture things where a person spends a lot of money to go see someone like Sepp Holzer, for instance. And you can tell by the questions they're asking. They haven't even read the guy's book. And I would think if you're going to spend a thousand bucks or more to go see somebody speak, you'd, you'd read their book so you knew their basics so you could because when you go to see somebody like this what you're really looking for is not just to meet them or whatever it's to be able to take what you already know about them and get clarification and take the application to a higher level but with all that education what i've seen is people misunderstand or put too much weight on a single thing that an you know quote-unquote expert has said this was evident in the q a after jeff lawton's and this was evident a lot and people asking questions about holistic management versus mob grazing and, and other things like that as well. But in, in, this is a perfect example, so I'll use it because I, I think it will help people start to pull things apart when you're getting information from so many different sources, whether it's just by reading or study or watching videos or, or going to a conference. 
So in Sepp Holzer's book, he says at one point he doesn't build his Hugel mounts on contour. He builds them off contour specifically so one doesn't dry out the one below it. And that since he's terracing up on his Kermatterhof on these steep angles, if you put a bunch of hugel mounds on contour there, they can build up so much moisture and water during snow melt, you can bring the side of the mountain down. So what this becomes in the mind of a person reading the book who gets focused on the difference of one expert over another expert's viewpoint is, Sepp Holzer says, don't do things on contour. I'll leave that hang for a second. So Jeff Lawton gets up, he does this whole thing, and he's talking about all different types of earthworks, and he's showing all these swales and other things being done on contour. So a person asks a question. Um, I live in a cold climate, more like Sepp Holzer does. It's moister. Uh, we don't have as much uh, lack of rainfall. When, you know, Jeff's in the tropics with like 60 inches a year or something like that, so you're missing that point too. But anyway, you know, when does it make sense to come off contour and do things like hoogles versus swales? So Jeff, having no ego, which is what I love about Jeff Lawton, I mean, just no ego at all. It's all about what works. Basically says, you know, you should do whatever works for you and, and all and, and, and what have you. And he actually, Jeff was like, at one point he says, you know, I don't think I really got hoogle culture uh, in the beginning myself. You're burying all this wood in this high mound. And then now I'm looking at banana circles, and you have this opening that you're putting all the organic matter into, but really they're kind of the same system. So I think these systems work anywhere. depends on how we apply them, which is a great answer. And I was so happy when Jeff said that because I've been saying that about Jeff's comments about Google culture for like two years now. Like, Jeff, you're not getting it, and I'm sure he has better things to do than listen to my show, so I'm sure he came to this you know, epiphany on his own. And I had zero to do with it, but I was very happy to hear him say that. I even kind of pointed at him and smiled when he said that because it's like, Garrett, you got it now. But this is what – so you think, well, that's the end. Well, it's not. And I think even the experts themselves don't see the parallels because they don't spend time examining each other's work. Where people like myself who just want to know what works from everybody, the perpetual student, gather the information from everywhere, and I'm not afraid to bolt it together at all which, again, is Jeff's advice. But this is what I wanted to do. I wouldn't do it, but I wanted to. I wanted to go up on the stage. I wanted to snatch the microphone away from Jeff and say, can I speak for a moment? And I wanted to say, Seb Holzer is doing most of what he does on Contour. So your, your question presupposes something that's not true. So because he writes this one line or one couple sentences about not putting a hoogle bed on Contour, it becomes Seb Holzer says not to do things on Contour. The entire Kramatohoff farm is on contour. It's man-made contour. That's what a terrace is. The, what Seb says is the first thing he does when he gets a piece of land to develop that's steep-sloped is put in terraces. He says, I must terrace it. Okay. Now, the minute you've done that, you've put in a great big flat swale. That's what a terrace kind of is. Because it doesn't slope downhill. If it, if it was like a terrace that was pitched downhill, it would erode very, very quickly. In fact, it's probably just a little bit cut back into the slope, maybe a degree, one degree back into the slope, or dead flat. But it's going to be flat, so that when the water comes down, great, and gets onto it, pacifies it and soaks in. There's also dozens of ponds on the Kramatterhof. Ponds here, ponds there, water flowing in between, turning water wheels, pumping water back up, making electricity, ponds, 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 trout, fish, Bouncing water. Why does that matter? You cannot build a pond any way other than on contour. 
water is it refuses to stand off contour unless you hold it in a vessel shaped off contour. In other words, if I take a bucket that's dead level and fill it up, the water will sheet out all across the entire rim. If I tilt the bucket one way and I fill it up, the water will come out the side that's lower because the water's going to fill on contour whether the bucket's on contour or not. So every pond and every terrace built into Sepp Holzer's farm is built on contour to control water the same way Jeff Lawton puts in a swale on contour to control water. They're just different solutions adapted to different situations by different individuals. So when we re, and this is I think one of the biggest things that, like I actually think that maybe if I go back next year and do more than a couple, you know, maybe two or three presentations, one of my presentations should actually be combining the techniques of the experts and explaining these things where people think, well, this camp believes in this and this camp believes in that and they're opposed to each other. So now I don't know what to do. In fact, many times I find that even the experts themselves believe that their methods are opposite of each other or different from each other. And because they're so focused on what they do, which is fine, but they don't see the, the, the way they're actually the same, the way they're linked together. And that was a big epiphany for me that I'd seen it before, but here I saw it more because people were far more educated and knew far more about what everybody said and, and actually put a lot of weight into what every presenter said. So, you know, when Alan Savory says, you don't need swells, you just need cattle, all of a sudden somebody's mind is like, well, I... What do I do now? Well, what you do is you put in swales and you use cows. So uh, one person asked me after Savory's talk, well, when it comes to fixing the big landscapes, not just running your farm then, should we just take massive amounts of cattle and start holistically grazing them, or should we do earthworks and then graze cattle, or should we do the cattle and then the earthworks, or should we just do earthworks, like Jeff says, and at least start stopping erosion, or should we just do cattle? Which one should we do? And I said, the answer is yes. The answer is whatever solution you can get into any system that has a positive effect on the system, that's what we should be doing. Because there's no doubt that we could go in with the modern equipment that can move very fast and do massive earthworks in a lot of our Midwest and desert climates and do nothing more and begin to immediately have a positive impact. We could also go into those situations and holistically graze cattle and do nothing else and have a positive impact on the, the situation. And both of those things are necessary. So which one would I do? Whichever one I could do on a large scale as fast as possible. But we don't have a lot of opportunities to do that right now. We really don't. And since we don't, what we should do is focus on what we can do. And for most of us, that's working with smaller plots of land. Um, but we can take these big ideas all the way down to a backyard. That was another place I had a little you know, contention with somebody. I really want to go visit Mark Shepard now. I mean, just I want to go spend time with Mark Shepard and Greg Judy. The two guys are awesome. I'll say more on both of them in a minute. But Mark was very hard on backyard growers and things like that. And he did point out some valid things, like the rain barrel is a delusion is what he said. So you've got a 2,000-square-foot house. The house sheds thousands and thousands of gallons of water. You put a little 50-gallon rain barrel down there. Well, that's a delusion. That's an inappropriate solution. But his, his big solution is everybody should be farming 100 acres and doing what I do. Well, not everybody's going to farm 100 acres and do what Mark does. And that was kind of what you were left feeling like. That's what he, like, if you're not doing that, you're not really doing anything. And I don't think he meant that, but that's how he made people feel. 
So my thing would be, well, when you tell people what doesn't work, why don't you tell them what does? So it's not just key line design on 100 acres doing alley cropping and civiculture and, and mob grazing through paddock shift that works. If you want to catch water off the roof of your house, go get a 1,500-gallon poly tank like we have. And if you don't have the money to do that, go get three or four 250 to 350 gallon um, IBCs that you can get for next to nothing on Craigslist, plumb them together, and if you put three 250 gallon tanks together, you get 750 gallons of water. You can do a lot with drip irrigation on a backyard scale with 750 gallons of water. And then it's an appropriate use of technology instead of just crapping on the rain barrel. So I think that a lot of times, again, We need, when we're listening to these experts that really do know what they're doing, to understand they are coming from their angle, their viewpoint, and it's such a tough business to make it in that the only way a person really can make it today in farming is to lock on to something and do it, and most of these guys did that when there wasn't a lot of people out there talking about how they'd done it already. Either this was secret knowledge or not yet learned knowledge. If you ask Mark Shepard, what chestnuts can you grow in Wisconsin right now, he'll say, here's a list of them. But when he started, he just had to take a whole crap load of chestnut seedlings, plant them at a density that no one would recommend, because he knew a bunch of them would do crappy and a bunch of them would die. And he just pruned out what he didn't want and then left with a stand that, that works. And then propagate from those. Now, if you have to do that... You don't have time to worry about where somebody disagrees with you. All you have time to do is hit the ground running and get it done. And whenever something doesn't work, you adjust and move on. Or you take Alan Savory, same type of thing. The guy goes out, kills thousands and thousands of elephants, convinced by academia that they were destroying the land. The land doesn't get restored at all. It gets worse when you remove the grazers that are supposedly causing the problem. It gets worse when you remove the indigenous people that were grazing their cattle. Everything gets worse, and he discovers that biological decay is the issue, that if you're going to have grasslands and savannas, there have to be grazing animals there to do the biological decay. He tries it. It works. He tries it again. It works. He does it everywhere he does it. It works. He develops a system of management that makes sure that not only can we put the cattle and the other livestock in the right place at the right time, we can actually explain how they got there, why they're there, and where they're going next, and how we'll get them there. Um, he does this in a way that you can put into a plan very easily and concisely, and that most people could manage livestock with, and it will fix land. So that becomes, well, this is what we do, to the exclusion often of what other people do. And I think for people to pioneer new methodologies, that that attitude is necessary. Because I haven't seen anybody ever really pioneer new, brand new, from the ground up, methodologies without that attitude. I'm just going to do it. It then becomes easier for people like us to observe, oh, Jeff would do a swale here, Mark would do a key line here, what do I want to do and why? Or can I swale that and key line in between the swale systems and pull that together, or will that do too much of a good thing? Or should I do my swales, you know, a little off contour, you know, one foot of fall over a hundred feet. So that's it, a key line swale. You might want to do that to spread water, right? You, or half a foot of fall over a hundred feet. I mean, that's, you might do an inch of fall over a hundred feet. 
So one foot over 1,200 feet. I don't know that I'm sold on that, but I can understand why it might be beneficial in certain situations. Especially the bigger the landscape, the more you may want to do something like this. So I think that there's nothing wrong with these experts being locked in on their, their vision of the way things should be. But I think that the person who truly understands why they're all doing what they're doing can then combine them and stack function and possibly do something more. And when we do that, we should make sure we're giving credit to the people that developed the original components of what we're doing. Um, now, the two guys, after this whole conference, and, and meeting Jeff was like meeting a, a hero, honestly, and I was not let down. Sometimes you meet a hero and you're like, huh, that wasn't really that great. Um, Jeff was awesome. And I want to hang out with Jeff, man. I want. I, I told Jeff again, dude, if you'll get on a plane and come to Dallas, I will hook up with two or three of the best fishing guides in the state and take you fishing. Um, and I was actually really kind of honored when he said to his daughter Latifah, there's Uncle Jack. That was friggin' cool. But when it comes to developing a farm in North America, which is what we're about to try to do, and get it to be profitable quickly, the two guys I want to spend my time with, you know, this late spring into summer, and get some education for my farmers from, are Greg Judy and Mark Shepard. Those two guys are polar opposite personalities, doing many of the same things and many things different. But those are guys getting it done. And they're not getting it done with some really brilliant marketing the way that, let's say, Joel Salatin is. I'll talk about that in a minute, and I'm not putting Joel down. I'm just saying they don't, they're not doing that. You know, They're not making a lot of money touring around with books and all. Mark has a book, but he barely even mentions his book in his presentations. He doesn't even ask you to buy it. He's just like, yeah, I have a book on that. Uh, and But he's a bit rough, a bit abrasive, even compared to my personality. Um, Greg is one of the most humble men I've ever met. And the kind of guy that you end up standing next to at a feed store or in a restaurant having a conversation about life with. Just, like, immediately. Like, the kind of guy that you meet and five minutes later you feel like you've known him forever. Right? He slows down. He takes his time. He talks to you. Mark's like me. He's on the run all the time. But these two guys are the guys I want. I want to know what they know. In Greg Judy's presentation which I only saw part of because of some other commitments and because I messed up which room he was in and I ended up in the back and couldn't see or hear very well. Um, <clears throat> I learned, for instance, two things that could save a rancher a fortune on cattle. One was, when you open your gate, get on the left side of the cows and watch them as they go through. Because there's something called a death triangle. This is an area up by the where the hip joins the body. Where if the cow's not getting good gut fill on the pasture, you'll start to see a triangle form. And the deeper that triangle goes in, the worse your problem. And you need to address what's wrong. Either you're not leaving them on the pasture long enough, or the pasture's not high enough quality, or you're giving them too small. And for some reason, and there's a lot of other things I learned too, but this was like, but for some reason, that cow's not getting good gut fill. You've got a problem. And even if you don't kill your cows, you might kill some of them, they're not going to gain weight the way they should, and they're not going to make you the money that they should. And if you stand on the right side as the cows go through the gate, apparently it only shows up on the left side. So stand on the, stand on the left side when you let your cows through the gate for this reason. 
Now, that little factoid right there could be the difference between profit and loss in a cattle operation. He also showed a picture of a cow, and he said, well, what do you guys think of this cow? And everybody's like, well, she looks healthy. She looks good. He's like, her legs are too long. What? That was my thought of being like, what? Well, see how she's not filled out? She's got these long, lanky legs. Get rid of that cow. She'll never make you any money. She's not going to put on weight well. She's not going to graze as well as other cattle that are lower centered. Uh, if she has calves, they're going to look like that. You're going to have her genetics in your herd. The calf's not going to make you money. Get rid of that cow now. Okay, that's another profit and loss immediate application. That cow is going to consume resources on your pasture. She's going to need you to put effort into her, and she's not going to be profitable. Cull that animal out. Those two things from Greg were just awesome. I mean, it made me, I want to get up. And he's invited myself and Dorothy, and his wife, Jan, is awesome too. Like, just come up and hang out with us for a weekend or something. Drive up. That approachable, that knowledgeable, and willing to share what he knows. And talk about zero ego. I say Jeff has no ego. But Judy, Greg Judy has just absolutely no ego. I think Greg's almost like, why does anybody care what I have to say? He's like, there's a lot of people doing this the same way we do. But yet, and I'm like, because you're telling people, you're willing to share what you know. And that's so important. If we're going to have, if we're going to say this can be done, then we need the people that have proven it to share how they do it. Mark, again, Mark's like a wrecking ball. And I mean that in a positive sense, but he's yeah, just, ah, you know, he's like, and he does just feel everybody should go out there and do what he does. And again, I don't think everybody can, but I want to. And what I learned from him were things like how to make money while you're establishing long-term overstory beyond animals. So my thing has always been the smartest thing to do is to put animals into the system like pastured pork and poultry, which are quick dollar animals, and they are. And I, that's still part of the plan. But he's like, well, you can set up your rows of trees and don't do the food forest thing the way we think of. Put all your trees of a species in one row and then all your trees of another species in another row and all your trees of another species in another row. And that way, when you go to harvest them, it's more orchard-like, even though the system's clumpy. And that doesn't mean there's not layers in there. That doesn't mean that you don't have elderberry and blackberry or raspberry growing in with your chestnut overstory. It just means you've set things up to make harvest manageable. That makes sense. No problem there. Already knew that. Then he's like, okay, so now when you plant all these trees, they're a little bitty. So in the spaces between them, go in there and plant produce. He's like, I did zucchini, I did, you know, all, he talked about all these tomatoes and, and, and melons and all that they grew as a market crop while the trees were coming up. And he said he was at one presentation where there, you know, there, there's a lot of movement now to build a chestnut industry again in America. And he was at a place where they were, you know, talking about that and he was speaking and he said, I planted chestnuts and in my first year I still made $4,000 an acre off the land I planted the chestnuts on. And some guy like flipped on him. They're a liar. You can't tell people that. They're, they're going to think they can do. Chestnuts take years to grow. And he said, I did not say I made $4,000 on chestnuts. I said, I planted the land with chestnuts and the land still yielded $4,000. And then he explained how it was other crops and using animals and basically grazing animals between the rows of chestnuts when they were young and planting other crops in there and, and things like that. And basically saying, look, you can establish these long-term overstory systems that are massively productive and require little maintenance, 
but you can work your butt off while they're being established and extract a profit from your land while increasing the soil fertility and making some money along the way so you don't have to wait 10 years to be profitable. These two guys I want to spend some quality time with. Um, Mark, I don't know if it'll be as easy, and he's further away. And what I may do is I, if he has any spots left at his workshops, I may pay to send Josiah there uh, for his next mission in life, just to the workshop, because the man is a, is a genius when it comes to making the land profitable and doing so quickly and not hurting the land to get that done. In fact, repairing the land. His farm's now 15 years old. It looks like a forest of abundance, and it is. And his alley, his alley crops now, you know, instead of growing produce, he's growing perennial alley crops. So you have things like big, huge stands of asparagus in between the trees, um, walking right through droughts without a problem. Awesome. Um, that's what I want to learn how to do. Greg's understanding of cattle and how to manage them and other livestock is superb. They're taking different approaches. Um, Greg is doing something Joel Salatin does a lot of, and, and I, I like it, but I think that we can't just do it this way if we really want to establish long-term systems. What both of them are doing is using other people's land, which I'll talk about more later in the show, but they're, they're either getting land to graze it for free because people just need it maintained. They don't want it overgrown. Or they're leasing it for very little, and they're putting cattle and chickens and pigs on the land, and they're managing the pasture. And then they're getting the yield for very little to no money and very little to no risk. And what Salatin calls this is making the farm portable. So all the infrastructure, the fences, the netting, all that stuff can be moved. So if you lose a farm because a guy doesn't want you running it anymore, you take all your stuff with you. And it, There's a business model there that works. But my problem with that model is old men using that model will not plant trees. You will If you're mentality is I'm managing this land for someone else and my yield is cattle and, and chickens and pigs. There's very little likelihood that you're going to bring an excavator in and put a swale in or bring a key line plow in and start putting, you know, a yeoman's plow in and start putting in some key line water management. You're going to think more along the lines of, yeah, I'm taking care of the land, but it's somebody else's land. For this model to really find its feet, and I think this is what we've walked into with, with permaethos, is we need a, an understanding with landowners that the relationship is designed to be long-term. That if I plant trees on that land, I may indeed sit under their shade someday. Because I got more than 15 years left here. And I can get a tree pretty big in 15 years. And if there's a really symbiotic relationship with the landowner to understand that we can increase the yields all around and we can provide you through our farm, right, our portable farm with our where we install people to run your farm, if we can do that for you in a way that increases the yield long term and increases productivity long term, increases the land value long term, why wouldn't you have us manage it? And I'm not saying you never will develop a farm into a, you know, a full-on permaculture farm and have the owner one day decide to, you know, end the contract by terms. But the less likely you make that, the more likely somebody is to actually start planting trees. And I do not believe that we can fix these problems or feed our nation and our world without planting trees. If we're going to get off modern agriculture, especially at the scale that it's being done, I still see 
20, 30 years from now, wheat fields, corn fields, bean fields. Just not as many of them. And I don't see humanity relying on them anywhere near as much. Now, the, the other guy there that I think was brilliant as a businessman, uh, good farmer, brilliant businessman, Joel Salton. Joel Salton introduced me to something called fiefdoms. Now, I know what a fiefdom is. A fiefdom is a thing that like a duke or a duchess has, right? So uh, I've heard the word before, but not quite uh, applied the way that he does. So a king has a kingdom, right? And if you're a noble within the kingdom, you have a fiefdom, a fiefdom, depending on how you pronounce it, right? So you have your little area within the grander kingdom that you're responsible for. So that's the word fiefdom, and that's the way I knew the word. Um, Joel has come up with a new way to look at that word. And he talks about within your farm having multiple business models in the farm and running them as independent business units. So I won't tell the whole story here, but basically they came up with a point where people wanted food delivered to the city. And like these two ladies who were buying like 800 bucks worth of food and taking it home were like, well, what would it take for you to come to us? And he's like, uh, I don't know, $4,000 worth of stuff. And so they call back in a week, and they're like, well, we have an order for you for $4,000 worth of stuff. They're like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to get in the car and drive. But they start thinking, well, if we're going to do this, we should put somebody in charge of, of you know, sales for delivery, and we should get somebody in charge of delivering the food. And that person should create their own paycheck, and we should not boil or, or add on the price of delivery to the food to make the delivery charge look lower, the the, the The unit itself should be profitable. And eventually they ended up with a person, that's what they did. They delivered the food. And that person initially was very part-time, but made a decent income, you know, working two, one to two days a week for three to four hours a day. And there's a lot of people that want that kind of little extra money opportunity. Over time, um, a, a gal that one of his sons married started kind of ramping this up and finding restaurants and things like that for direct sales and took over marketing that. And built up a situation where she's providing her own paycheck on a straight commission basis and has built a huge book of business that's required Joel to start you know, leasing land and managing additional land just so they can provide enough product to meet the demand that she's been able to create on the other side. And that when they get an intern and the intern is done with their internship and says, I'd like to stay, is there any way I can have a job? They say... Create your job. Design your pay scale. Present it to us. And they don't like to put people on an hourly rate or a salary. They like people to, to, to just say, look, we have all these opportunities. What do you want to do? And like one guy, Joel had kind of noted, we need a gardener. For all the stuff we're doing, we don't have a garden anymore because the person who did the garden left. And the garden could produce a lot of the produce that we're not producing, and some of it could be marketed and sold, but a lot of it would be used here on the farm. And he's like, I like tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that for my own use and for canning and what have you, and somebody needs to do this. So one of the interns said, well, I'll do that. And he said, okay, well, how are you going to get paid? And the guy came back to him and said, well, I'll produce X amount of food for internal use, and this is what I'm going to charge you to produce food for you. So basically, I'm going to sell you the food out of your own garden, and then all the rest of it is mine to market to anywhere I see fit, and I want to do a shiitake mushrooms business. And they said, okay, let's give it a shot. Next thing you know, this guy's got a thriving little farm, like a market garden farm, running inside Polyface Farms. Now, there's no risk to Joel. There's very little risk to the guy doing it, 
He's got this great brand out of in front of him to sell with. He knows the products that he can produce will sell. He's got a marketing girl that's created her own little fiefdom who he can go to and say, what would the people we were already selling to buy if we also had it and grow some of those things? He's got kind of a guaranteed we'll buy X amount internally from Polyface, from Joel and his wife and his family that want this produce. You know, can you imagine being Joel Salad and wanting a pepper And then thinking, I have to go off my own farm and buy a freaking pepper because nobody here has time to grow peppers anymore? It's got to be maddening. So I'll buy it from my own farm. Because this guy's doing something of value, and i got to buy it from somewhere, so I might as well buy it from me. And then all of a sudden, there's another salary. I want you to really think about that. So you got a farm. guy wants a job. There's everything that needs to be done for the farm to do business the way it's being done right now is being done. There's, if you hire somebody, it's really just to make somebody else not have to work so hard, and it's creating additional expense without additional revenue. You can only build jobs so long that way. But when you say, well, here's our whole farm, do you see anything you could do that we're not doing that would generate revenue? And that guy comes in and does that, not only is his job secure, there's a very stress-free relationship. If, if he says, well, I want to ra I want to raise 3,000 broiler chickens a year on your, on your, one of your farms. And you say, okay, well, you pay for the netting. You pay, we'll show you how to do everything, but you pay for everything. You buy the chicks, you buy the feed, whatever. You make the profit and you keep the lion's share of the profit. Then if that guy does something stupid and his chicks die, um, you're not happy about it, but you're not really hurt by it. And he's learned at his own expense. So, That alone was just, that was worth going to California, which, by the way, I hope Diego really considers doing one of these next year outside of California. I know he lives there, and he thinks that makes it easier, but I guarantee you, you could get a much lower cost of running an event in a venue like Houston or Dallas, and yes, I'm in Texas, so it's self-serving, but I, I believe those are two great markets, easy to fly into, and a very competitive you know, kind of convention event market where hotels will crawl over each other to win your business. Atlanta, Georgia would be another great market. Jacksonville, Florida, these are all inexpensive relative markets to California that would also expose other people to what you're doing. Um, get people to come that maybe couldn't travel to California for the first one. Just, just throwing that out there. But, uh, cause California, God, you guys, I had somebody I had a discussion with when I was getting on the airplane and they said, well, you have some weird rules in Texas too. And I'm like, okay, well, we have old archaic laws that are still in the books that we're slowly getting rid of. Like weird rules in Texas evolve. Like if you want to buy beer before noon on Sunday or buy a car on Sunday, like those old laws that need to go away. Like, California, you guys just keep coming up with new laws. Anyway, so there's my little California rant. I got, okay, get this. This is California ignorance. So we go to the airport, and there's like a food court and a bar. And I sit down in this bar uh, for breakfast, not to buy booze or anything, but just, just to have breakfast because there wasn't a really nice restaurant at San Diego airport. Because apparently when they remodel at San Diego, they tear everything the hell down at one time. So we go in this stone something brewery. I sit down. Dorothy's like, I really don't want anything on the breakfast menu. I said, why don't you go get something from one of the food court places and I'll order you coffee or whatever. You come back and we'll eat here. So she goes and does that. I'm eating this. It was awesome, by the way, duck hash and eggs. And um, 
she comes in, and this little weenie that I wanted to grab and throttle comes up and goes, ma'am, I'm sorry, you cannot eat other people's food here, which I was a little pissed about, but... You know, if you have that rule, you don't bring other food into my restaurant. I, I sort of get that. He goes, the health code regulations of the state of California will not allow it for the safety of our diners. You can't bring food in from an outside source. And I went, oh, we're food safe out there, but not in here. And he ran away. He literally ran away. And she got up and left. And I demanded my check. I paid, and I walked out. And I told the girl behind the bar, I hope I never step foot in your state again. If Diego, if you're listening... I will still come back to California if you do voices there. Please consider other options. There are other options that will maybe allow you to make more money because you'll give less of it to the state of California. Now, on some critiquing. Some critiquing here. Um, my two biggest critiques are as follows. Number one, I think that the speakers that are going and doing this, and this is on the big-name speakers that are good speakers, I'd like to see them step it up on the solutions application side. And I won't name anybody because I don't want to put anybody down because everybody did great, especially for the first time. And maybe not even understanding how educated. And I think there were some of the speakers who were, were a little bit blown away at the knowledge in the audience. They're used to speaking you know, at... Um, Events where it's more like people that are like deer in the headlights and are just being exposed to permaculture, or a lot of these guys aren't even really, you know, I would call Alan Savory a permaculturist. I think Alan Savory is a holistic management grazer of cattle who we in permaculture have abducted into our ranks. Like we, we're claiming him, we're taking him in because he's that awesome, right? So, but I think they're used to speaking to people that don't really understand the problem. So a lot of the speakers spent over half of their time defining the problems in the system, the weaknesses in the system, and the places where the system needs to change. Some of this was beneficial because some of it was beyond maddening. For instance, Joel Salatin you know, explained that due to farm regulations, it's actually illegal for him to write one of his books in his office at his farm because since the farm is zoned agricultural, that's considered an industrial activity on a farm. And we have to protect the farm by keeping industrial activities away from it. Or if they put a sawmill on the farm, they can cut their own wood, but if they start cutting wood for neighbors and charging them for it as an additional income stream, it's industrial activity on an on a agriculturally zoned piece of land. So that kind of stuff was good to know. Because if you're going to go into farming and you're thinking about this, you've got to plan, do I just not zone my farm ag? Or do I buy myself a little half-acre place within you know, a, few, a, you know, a rifle shot of, of the farm that I can do those other activities on, or how do I do this? So that was useful, because it was logistically important. But there were you know, people that went through all of the ways that agriculture's failing, all of the ways that the environment's in trouble, and I'm not talking about the global warming thing where I, I, you know, I bifurcate with some of the people that it's all CO2. There's actually very little of that, which was encouraging, by the way. Um, but there was this whole, like, a one-hour presentation, you're giving me a half hour on what's wrong. And I think maybe it's new for the, some of these speakers of this caliber. The people in the audience of something like Permaculture Voices know perfectly well what's wrong. And they know the basics of your teaching, and they came there to see you because they want to know more. And I'd like to see many of the speakers step it up next year. And new speakers that will come in know from the beginning, step it up with the application. Show people what to do. 
how to do it and how to get it done. If you feel it necessary to spend five minutes defining some problems, go ahead. But people that come to this do not need to be sold that you know what you're doing. So they don't need to hear how somebody else's method is inferior to yours. They don't even care. They just want to know what you do. And they don't need to be told that our industrialized civilizations are in trouble, that our planet's in trouble, that there's pollution, that we're causing massive damage to the land, not because it's untrue in any way, but because they already know this. They didn't go there to be told about the problems. They went there because they're aware of the problems and they're looking to you for solutions. So I'd love to see every speaker, from the least known to the best known, as they think about Permaculture Voices too, which I'm pretty sure is going to happen, how can I step up on the application side of things? I think that would be great. I would also say, especially for some of the people that are new to speaking, if you're going to go speak at these events, I would encourage you to do so. I would encourage you to speak everywhere and any place you can. Get your message out about the wonderful work that you're doing. But I do think that it would make sense for some of you to maybe go to something like Toastmasters. Do a fake podcast in your bedroom that you don't even put out and listen to it. There were some speakers that were so monotone that even though they had good information, I could not sit through their presentations, a couple of them. I actually want the video so I can fast forward through some things and zoom in on some things because I think what they were talking about was really, really awesome. But when you're talking about things like this, and you're showing me a picture of your backyard, and there's a tree in the corner that has the same species all along the property border because those are support trees in that system, and you wanted to create a windbreak to the north because the harsh winter winds come in from there, and this has reduced your evaporation in an environment where you don't get much rainfall, I go to sleep. I go to sleep. I actually want to know exactly what you did. I want to know why you did it. I want you to talk about it. I want you to sound like you care. I want you to sound passionate. I am not saying that everybody needs to be a world-class speaker to speak and be heard. I am saying... That's another place where let's step it up. If you're going to go speak in front of a hundred or more people, let's spend some time rehearsing that presentation. Let's let's know that presentation, not necessarily cold because you can overscript it, but let's know it. Let's have done it a couple times, and let's have some passion. Let's let me hear when you start talking about planting those trees, and when you figured it out, how it, like if you said the same thing like. On the northern boundary, we realized that we had really heavy winds, and, and especially in the winter, and this was a frost problem, and it was also uh, an opportunity to get nutrients in, and it was an opportunity to reduce evaporation, so we selected a certain species of tree. This is the species we selected and why, and we planted them here, and this is the effect that it, we're, we're now seeing. It's the same words, basically. But now I'm awake. I'm not checking email on my phone. Now, again, I don't want anybody to think I'm being overly critical. But if you're going to get better, you need to identify deficiencies. So if you come to me and say, fix my land, one of the things I'm going to do is look at your land and identify its deficiencies. 
water is eroding like this and taking your topsoil away. We have to put a stop to that. Right? So we're going to put in a swale or an embankment or earthworks or we're going to do some plantings and we're going to get some cattle in there and graze it and start putting down some, some heavier, uh, plant life, perennial grasses and clovers and chicories so that we can reduce. But, but until, and there's like 20 solutions to this problem. But if we don't say the problem is erosion and the source of the erosion is this grade and the fact that the land is in X condition, we cannot come up with any solutions. So, Those people that speak at events that end up in that monotone, quiet, just talk louder, just talking louder is huge. Be confident in what you know. People are there to listen to you because you have a model that they've looked at and they've decided, this guy knows what he's doing and I want to know how to do it. So be confident. Feel like you really know what you're doing because you do. And, and, and just get some experience And take up the performance bit a little bit. And remember why you're doing what you're doing. Because that's where the passion will come from. So, because I think that people, when they come from an, a, a, a speaker who had passion in their voice, who made them understand how they felt on their own journey of design and discovery, then they're like, I, I, I want to do this too. I'm excited about this. But if they feel that you're not excited about what you did, well, it's very hard for them to be excited about it. Pictures, pictures, pictures with the design stuff, too, guys. Lots more pictures. Anyway, so that's my two critiques. Um, I want to talk about some big opportunities for entrepreneurs that, that I, I, I kind of gleaned from this. And some of them I already knew, and I've confirmed it. Some, like, they're, they're, they're new to me. Or, like, I knew about them, sort of, and now I'm really sold on them. The first one is the nursery business, which I've talked about a lot lately. But big or small, there's tremendous opportunity. I mean, uh, just when I start thinking about how easy it is to propagate cuttings, and you think about being able to propagate cuttings, and I've, I've been watching this, uh, this, these videos that I purchased from this guy, Mike McGarty, um, on propagating cuttings, and he builds... You know, a garden bed, basically, a raised bed like I would build to grow vegetables in. About four feet wide by ten feet long with shade cover and a misting system and all. You can put it together, and you could probably get thousands of cuttings in there. You know, and the next year plant them into pots and sell them off. And you start thinking about making three, four, five dollars a plant even and putting a thousand, just a thousand, you want more than a thousand, but just a thousand cuttings propagated At $5 a cutting on average, once propagated and sold off, and that little box is $5,000 in final product. Now, there are farmers that are very, very proud, and they should be, because they have profit yields of $4,000 an acre. But if I, if I do the math on $5,000 to 4 foot by 10 foot, I'm, I'm yielding $125 a foot. $125 per square foot. Now, am I guaranteeing you you can do that? No, but I am telling you it's possible. And how many of those little beds can you fit in your backyard? And, you know, you add a greenhouse and a little bit of infrastructure and a grow-out area to grow some to more mature, larger sizes before they're sold, and some plants are going out the door at $15, $20, How much money can a person really make on a half of an acre with this model? The answer is a lot. Um, Bob Wells has about an acre and a half 
on his main nursery area. And I think he's got a, an area with an orchard, and they do some propagation out of that. It's about another acre and another half acre somewhere else. So in total, you're looking at about three acres of land. And they had to have two dozen salaried employees working at his, his establishment. So he's providing a couple dozen people a livelihood, plus making a living himself off of three acres. And that means, yes, you can do it on a half an acre. And you could probably develop so much business on a half of an acre, you will have to provide a salary to one or two additional people just to help you once you get established. The nursery business, big or small, I think is an incredible opportunity. Um, we talked about this a little bit already, but I'll say some more. Now, grazing sheep and cattle on OPL. Now, business and finance, there's a concept of OPM, other people's money. OPL is other people's land. I can graze cattle, sheep, chickens, uh, goats, whatever on OPL, man. And I think you can do really well with it. My fundamental flaw in the, that model, if that's all you're doing, and the relationship is simply I can graze on your land, that you can only take that so far. That it's, it's very unlikely the person that's trying to make a living off of pastured pork and poultry, grazing on somebody else's land, is going to spend a lot of time doing civiculture or planting trees. And the system would be better all around if we started planting trees into the system. And, again, so to do that model, I think that the people doing it need to start thinking, how can I strengthen the relationship to the point where I would have the confidence to not just graze the land as if it were my own? Because that's what people are doing. And that's why the model works. The people having them, having another person come in and graze their land know full well. They know full well that their land is in better shape because it's being grazed. And if they can make a little money, fine. If they can pay the taxes, fine. And they know that the value of their property, the equity in their property is going up because of the grazing activity. And they don't begrudge the grazer making a profit because they know that enables them to manage their land. That relationship is strong. So... Me telling you I will graze your land with the same care as if it were my own gets us that far. But how do I get it to where I will manage the entirety of your land as though it were my own? How do we bridge that gap? And that's what we're working on with Ethos. Because Ethos, Permaethos is going to be a combination of farms that are managed, established, and developed for partners. I don't like the word clients, for partners. And Farms that as we develop a revenue stream, we buy and manage and establish and develop that we internally own. It's going to be both. And we will build communities into them. And we will push the envelope for how big we can make a community before the man gets involved. And that will let us do more in more places and more states than we could ever have done under the old model. And that's great. But we have to actually figure that out. How do I create a relationship so strong with a landowner that I have someone from my organization or multiple someone's living on that person's land and knowing that 10 years from now, unless that person just doesn't want to be there anymore, they'll still be there and the relationship will still be there. How do we co-manage the property to develop multiple incomes off the property so that the landowner feels, I never want these people to ever leave and if somebody leaves, I want them to find someone and fill the hole. I don't want the, I, I never want this to go away. I want to be able to take my kids out to the farm, their, or my grandchildren to the farm their grandfather helped build, 
and know that if those kids want opportunity on the farm, it's there. And if they just want to be able to come there and rely on it for good food, they can. I want my great-grandchildren still talking to the people that I put here. How do I create that type of a relationship? And the OPL grazing model, in my view, should evolve to that. And I believe that it can. I believe that it can. Because the only reason a person gets rid of land is they need money. They can't afford the land or they need money for other purposes. If land is a profit center, it will be cherished. And the greater the profit from the land, the more the land will be cherished. And the more it will be held on to. And if you get in with a strong partner and the landowner ends up at some point needing money, then why not have the landowner have the option to sell a portion of the ownership in the land to the people who are already managing it and stewarding it and, and, and still retain some ownership in it and be able to solve whatever fire and then give that landowner the option. Basically, it's like a loan with the land as collateral. Instead of selling off 100% of your farm to somebody that might bulldoze it and put in a subdivision, sell 25% of your farm off to the management that's running your farm and managing hundreds of other farms. Take the money and solve your problem in your life. Because we have to go through these life events that cause these catastrophes. This is how people lose things that they love that they would never want to part with, but they feel they have to. Go solve that problem. And if eventually, if you solve it to the point where you want your equity back, we'll sell it back to you on what you paid for it. I think that's how you develop that relationship. And you keep experimenting and examining how can we do this with neither side feeling deception by the other or preying upon the other. How can we co-manage lands? where we don't say we're doing this to be hippies that breathe purple and live off our navels and one day we won't need food anyway if we get our energy high enough. And, and we actually say, no, in our society, profit is a good thing. Profit is a yield. Businesses should have yields just like farms should have yields. And how do we do that in such a way that it's most beneficial for both parties to work together for generations? And that's, that's all that's necessary. If the most beneficial choice to both sides is to foster, continue, and develop the relationship, that will be the result the majority of times. There'll be times when people have mental illnesses and go off the reservation or whatever, but they'll be minimal. You know, this is a problem, that people think that good people don't act in their own self-interest, that that's what bad people do. Everybody acts in their own self-interest. You have to. Because you care about you, and you care about your family more than anybody else in the world. Period. I care about you, but I care about me more. Do you know why? I'm me. I'm not you. There is an element of humanity that is the self. And it's why we're not all dead yet. If you really cared about others more than yourself, you might as well kill yourself. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's not. Especially if you're an environmentalist. Just get out of the way. Just leave. You're consuming resources. It could be eaten by somebody else. But you're not going to do that because you do value yourself more than you value a person across the street. Now, I'm going to get the hate emails over this one and the hate comments. Fine. But I'll tell you this. If you're taking the time to email me or comment to defend that you are not more concerned about yourself than others... Clearly you are, because you're putting your ego in front of doing something for somebody else. Instead of going out and doing something for somebody else, you're, you're investing your energy and telling me I'm wrong. 
So my point with that isn't to put anybody down. It's let's just acknowledge that the human beings put themselves and their self-interest most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, in front of the interest and needs of others. That's not bad. It just means that then we need to design and develop businesses and communities where acting in one's self-interest leads to positive results. So if I create a system where me working really hard to make your farm profitable for you leads to a lifelong of me doing what I love and making a good profit for myself, and I have freedom to express myself through the management and design and implementation of something beautiful, and I can make a living, and I can homeschool my kids on a farm, or whatever it is I want, then it's in my best interest to do the best job I can for you. And if you have your land cared for better than you would ever could yourself, and even if you want to be part of the management establishment and, and, and running of a farm, that you have a staff that makes it where it's not so hard on you, where you can depend on other people, then it's in your best interest to foster good relationships with those people so they don't leave. It's called voluntary association. And that's where I think the OPL model needs to go. Because right now, we have a symbiotic relationship that's limited. And we need to take the limit off. Um, the next thing, alley cropping. I didn't even know what alley cropping was. I never paid attention to it. I always thought they meant ally cropping, like axis and allies, like these two species do well together. Alley cropping is what it sounds like. It's alleys, right? So I have a, a row of trees, and then I have a row of crop, and maybe I have an understory crop under the trees, and then I have a row of full sun crop or dappled shade crop and another crop, and then another row of trees. And I'm cropping in between the trees, like Jeff Lawton's design for the farm in Jordan. Awesome. And it, it, it's, it's awesome for multiple reasons. One, it makes use of space that otherwise would not be used, and it cre creates profit by doing so. And it increases yield by doing so. And it increases opportunities by doing so. But the other thing that it does is it lets a farmer say, how the hell do I go from 100 acres of corn to a system of plums and pecans and walnuts and chestnuts and apples and pears that I know will sell well, that I know I can make more money with than I can with corn. There's, I, farmers understand this. They know this. They're not stupid. Farmers are smart people. When you tell them if you had 100 acres of multiple species production and you were putting animals through that system, your farm would be more profitable per acre than it could ever be growing corn and beans. They, they don't doubt that. What they're saying is, okay, so these trees take five years to 15 years to really produce. How do I pay the bills between then and now? How do I not lose my farm while I get there? How do I turn 100 acres into a silver pasture, alley-cropped orchard? so that I have longevity and resiliency in my system, how do I get rid of the plow but pay the bill for the plow? How do I get rid of the combine but pay the bill for the combine? How do I get there from here? And alley cropping is one of the main answers. It's you go from beans to production, to produce, melons, zucchini, cucumber, good, marketable, highly productive crop, 
labor-intensive, yes, but you can solve that, that equation by doing the work yourself and by hiring people to do it for you. You take those products to market, you sell the hell out of them, you make a living while the farm transitions. And you speed up your time to production with your trees by planting lots of different varieties of trees and then propagating the ones that produce well and early. And now I have an answer to that question. Because my old answer was you don't do 100 acres, you do five. You do five. You take five acres and you start doing this, and when it gets productive, then you do ten. And when that, But there's the same lag in the next five, ten acres. With alley cropping... I could say, well, what we do is we make the plan. We start you know, going into the spring of next year. We do our initial earthworks at the end of this season. We start putting these systems in place, and we do most or all of everything right away. And we can still grow some corn and beans in here, too, in these, these bigger strips that you can get your machinery through that we'll design that way. And eventually, we'll, we'll convert the whole thing. And even your, your inner crops will be things like strawberries, and blueberries, and elderberries, and sea berries, and asparagus that are perennial as well. But yes, annuals, I put the seed in the ground, and I harvest it the same year, and I make money, so we're going to do that during the establishment phase. And I learned that from Mark Shepard. And I now have an answer to one of the most difficult questions that I've ever been asked on this show. From farmers that are farming, like, dude, we have 250 acres. We would do this. How the hell do we do it? Go to Mark Shepard's place and learn what he did and do that. That is, my, that is now my answer. Because it's not just, oh, look what it is. It is how he got it there and made a profit along the way until he got to a place where the system is now largely self-sustaining. And alley cropping is a huge part of it. Um, education, I think, is a huge market. And again, as I keep saying, get beyond the PDC, which you might find ironic when you hear about something we'll be doing that I'll tell you about next month. Uh, PDCs are awesome. I think everybody should take one. I think people that can teach one well should teach them. But I think they are one bullet in the gun. One round of ammunition. You know, they're a 9mm full metal jacket. Well, sometimes you need a 3006 with 150 grain pointed soft points so you can shoot a deer. You know, and sometimes you might need something like a 44 Magnum flat point so you can also shoot a deer or maybe kill a pig. There, you know, there's all different types of ammunition that we use in our, in our guns. And even the same caliber has different flavors of ammunition for different applications. I can take a 3006, put a 22 caliber, 55 grain uh, round in it with a Sabo. It's called the 3006 Accelerator. Like a new Groundhog's at 450 yards with it. Or I can put a great big heavy, long 220 grain round nose in it that'll bore its way flat through... A full-grown Sierra's moose. Same gun. Totally different applications by changing the ammo. I think when we as educators focus exclusively on PDCs to the exclusion of other opportunities, we have decided that we are taking the 3006 accelerator round that does 4,200 feet per second and saying, this is the holy grail. And there's a lot of people out there going, dude, I just want to know how to grow food in my backyard. I don't care about sector and zone analysis. And I don't want to pay you to do it for me. I want to know 30 or 40 plants that work well here, that are unusual, that my neighbor doesn't have, that are productive, and, and how to plant them. That's what I want to teach them that. I think the nursery opportunity is huge. So plant propagation methodologies is huge. Someone that really knows, how do I do rooting? How do I do cuttings? How do I, 
How do I do grafting? When is it better to root a cutting versus do a graft and vice versa? How do I create plants that solve the pollination issue like Ben Falk did with his sea berries where he's grafting male tips onto female plants so you don't lose space? How do I? There's so many. I, I mean, I don't even know what, the, what all the things you can do. That's the point. The fact that I even know those is valuable, that I'm telling you they can be done is valuable. But what if somebody could show you how to do it and say, yeah, but don't do that, do this. Here's why. So I think that, that is a huge educational opportunity. Um, and I think there's probably dozens of systems that can be developed that all can be adapted to different situations that are beneficial when propagating different types of plants and, and, and different environments and different climates and what have you. And that people should grab that one and run with it, especially those with a good horticulture background that know how to do this. And, and, and where it's lacking is doing it with rare, unusual food productive species and support species. That, that, that is a huge opportunity. And it's hard to find all, I mean, I'm looking outside right now at, at thousands of dollars worth of trees that we had to go to 15 different sources to get. That I'm a little nervous about not getting in the ground for another two weeks, but they seem to be doing everything. Seems fine. You know, I may people say it's easy when you have a workshop to do this stuff, Jack. And I'm like, I don't want to just run and go plant everything right now, so I know it's safe, right? So there's there's when you understand when you get into the education market, you start doing workshops, you have to sometimes time events less than optimal, suboptimal timing, I guess you would say. Like these things should have been in the ground three weeks ago. They're going in the ground two weeks later, so five weeks later than optimal timing, but it's still okay. And it's just when I could work it out to where I could run a workshop. So with education, think about how you can stack optimal timing into your educational flow. I mean, if all I did was workshops, it wouldn't have been a problem. But I have this whole other you know, podcast empire thing going on. So think about that. Uh, another opportunity I think is huge that people don't realize how great the opportunity is, go do an internship with an established farm. If you can get into Polyface or you can get into Greg Judy's internship or Mark Shepard's. Um, so I said to Greg Judy, for instance, at breakfast one morning, so if you have any interns who have completed their internship with you and they're looking for a place to go, we might have need of some people like that very soon. And he said, as far as people who have already been through, The ones that are good, they're already somewhere. They find something right away. Somebody somewhere says, come manage my land, graze cattle on it, or an established operation says, we need a good grazer. They bring them in. They find jobs or they find businesses like that. Shepard said the same thing. Joel Salen said the same thing. He's like, the good ones we try to keep. But if they don't stay with us, they go somewhere else, they have someplace to go. There are opportunities for people that know what they're doing And I think an internship is a great way to establish the knowledge and the credibility. And it doesn't have to be Greg Judy. It doesn't have to be Mark Shepard. It doesn't have to be Joel Salen. If those guys don't have room, say, who do you know that's doing it right? Get a referral and go intern with them. All the person that you're going to go work for needs to hear is, here's the farm I was on. Here's the financial outlook of this farm. Here's how long this guy's been in business. This is what he taught me, and I'm ready to go do that on your land. And there are opportunities galore. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of farmland. I've also learned from Joel Salton and Greg Judy both that have been abandoned. Not bought up, not taken over by conglomerates in Monsanto, just basically the farm family still owns it. There's no profit in farming to them anymore, and it's just sitting there fallow. That's opportunity. 
And again, a great on-ramp to it is internship with an established farm. Uh, I think there's incredible opportunity for developing new varieties of plants, trees, birds, cows, you name it. Like to play around with breeding. And I think that can be done initially on a very small scale. Especially with plants and small animals like chickens. Joel Salad, for instance, I didn't get to talk to him after this presentation. I wish I did. He said they're experimenting with this bird that's a good layer. And the, one of their fiefdoms is, you know, they got this person that's working with this bird. And they're developing this bird, and it's a great layer. It's really robust. It's really hardy. It handles things. It does great on pasture. Um, and it produces great eggs. But, you know, you only need a couple roosters. For, you know, two dozen hens, you maybe need one rooster. So you have all the cockerels coming out of this, this breeding program. And he doesn't know that they're marketable. He said it's great meat, like, but it's like orange fat. He said it's like beautiful fat, but like it's not what the consumer really wants, and they're not the biggest bird. And you know, is it really marketable? And his thought was, well, if it's not, we'll feed them, we'll feed the the cockerels to the pigs, and the pigs will eat them. But I, we don't want to do that. We want to develop a market for this. And immediately, I thought, well, then sell them to homesteaders. If I'm raising birds for meat production. For myself, and I want to run 50 birds twice a year, and that bird is a good-tasting, good-eating, hardy bird that works hard while it's here, that does a lot of good for my land until I decide to slaughter it, that I can keep on pasture longer than a Cornish cross or even a Heritage White, and maybe it's not that marketable of a bird, yeah, I don't want to raise 3,000 of them and pasture them and try to sell them at market if the consumer is going to reject it and not be willing to pay the pasture premium that, that, that producers are coming to expect for this high-quality meat. I don't want it for that. But if I want to put it on my three-acre property, and I can buy those chicks for $250 a chick, and have them shipped in a little box to my post office and go pick them up like I did with my Freedom Rangers, I'll buy that. And how quickly would they sell out if Joel How many of you, if Joel Salad made those birds available, would give them a shot? So that means even when the cross creates something that's good in one area but, but weak in another, it might be an opportunity. And then how many of you might think to yourself, well, what if I know the lineage of this bird? And what can I take some of these cockerels and breed them to to, ex to to extend the experiment to something else? Can I improve the breast size or can I improve the hardiness or can I improve the egg? There's so much opportunity with that if we don't all try to be Joel Salatin and some of us just want to say, hey, dude, Sell me your, sell me your leavings, so to speak, and I'll take that and go somewhere else with it. And I think Joel's the kind of guy you wouldn't get an ego over it and be like, oh, I don't want somebody using mine to develop theirs and competing with. No, there's no competition in this market. The the demand so outstretches the supply that we're 20, 30 years from anybody stepping on anybody's toes. And I think people doing this know that. So the development of new varieties, apples, like I talked about, can be hand pollinated, controlled grown out the seed to a whip in one season, and that whip grafted in the next season to an established root tree, that apple variety trialed, and then immediately grafts from that can be propagated. And, you know, saving some seed and growing multiple whips from the one known cross, proving it out. That's and, and you don't have to wait seven years for a tree from seed to produce. All you have to do is do two seasons of research. Now, if you're trying to run an apple orchard, and you're trying to just stay in business every day, you may not have the time to do that. But the backyard hobbyist does. And it can be done with plums. 
It can be done with apricots. It can be done with it can be done with anything. Everything cross pollinates, and no, not every time you cross pollinate do you get something yicky. If you did, we wouldn't have any of the variety we do. That's how we got it. And we could be doing this on the scale of hundreds of trees in one suburban backyard. And the guy that comes up with the next awesome apple, he's got something. He's got something of value. And people will climb over themselves to get a piece of it. I think urban design consulting is still one of the biggest undertapped markets. And I think the way to do urban consulting is more of an educational process than it is uh, I have a client and I go design their yard. This is what I mean. If I'm a consultant and I come to your backyard and I'm going to spend a day there and give you a design, I really have to bill you somewhere in the neighborhood of $600 to $1,000. I really have to. I'm not going to be profitable if I don't because I'm not going to have somebody. If I have five days a week of consulting going on, well, you know, if I build everybody I went and did a day's consulting with 200 bucks for the day, I can make a thousand bucks a week, and that's a fifty thousand dollars salary. That's not terrible, but as a self-employed person, paying my own Social Security, being responsible for my own health insurance, I'm I, I'm not living much better than a person making slightly over minimum wage, employed at a job with benefits. In fact, I'm probably living less well off. I might be happier, but financially, I'm probably less well off than a twelve dollar an hour employee with benefits. Plus, I got to drive there. Not every client's going to be easy. Some require a couple days of thought to come back with a design solution, what have you. But if I ran design clinics, okay, design clinics that clients paid to be part of on a revolving basis, and I said I'm going to do neighborhood clinics, plant specifics, we're going to take 20 people from a general area into the next clinic, Every client is going to pay $400 to be part of this clinic. And in one month, doing weekend clinics, we're going to go and we're going to explain exactly how to do what needs to be done for everybody's yard. Everybody's going to end up with a plan. We'll go visit a lot of the yards. We probably can't visit all 20 in, in, in you know, four Saturdays. But... We're gonna we're gonna make it happen. We're gonna meet. We're gonna discuss. We're gonna learn all about sheet mulching, small earthworks, pond building, solar aspect. Basically, we're gonna get very intensive with how to design a system in this climate. And we're gonna be looking at everybody's property and everybody collaborating. And we'll take that to kind of a garden club after that's done where you 20 guys are going to stick together. And when you need me, you can pay me to come back in and, 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 and do an event for you or uh, what have you. All right. Now, I've just made $8,000. I'm just under that model. I just made this month $8,000. Well, that's about a $72,000 salary. Now I'm starting to get somewhere. If I can put together 12 clinics like that a year, I can make about 70 grand a year, and I'm only working Saturdays. I'd work sa I don't know about you. I'd work Saturday and Sundays for that. Or I'd do Friday evenings and Saturday days for that all day long. That can be built. That spreads out the cost through a client base. And you can just say, we need 20 people. That's the minimum to do it for this level. In fact, you can say the clinic is $8,000 for a month of the clinic. If you have 10 people, 
and everybody's willing to pay $800, I can do it with $10. I can actually probably do a better job. But I'm going to cap it at $20 because that way I know everybody gets what they were promised. Now I have a business revenue unit of $70,000 a year. And I have the rest of my week free. So I can build other opportunities. Now I can teach one or two PDCs a year if I'm a full-on consultant. Right? Now I can do one or two workshops every year that are plant development workshops or plant propagation workshops. And guess who's going to come to them? Ding, ding, ding. My people from my clinic. So now, as I run these clinics as a cash flow model, and unless you live out in the middle of Jabip, If you live in an urban-centric area, you could run these things for 20 years and not run out of potential clients. Because all you got to do is, remember, you're only traveling a couple times a week to these places, so you can just move to different areas. Talk to all the nurseries, all the garden clubs, market yourself, go to Chamber of Commerce meetings, talk about what you do, put together a good presentation where people can see how it works, why they'd want to do it, how you can transform an entire neighborhood, how you can encourage neighborhood outreach, how you can build community in these neighborhoods, how you can do this with gentle shifts, how you do no harm to, to, the, to, to the people that live there, to their land, to their neighbor's land, to their pets. Package that, sell that. There you go. There's a business, go do it. I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious when I say that. That is one of the most packageable, manageable businesses. And now I'm not trying to suck $2,000, $3,000 out of a client to do the level of work that client expects. I'm empowering them to do their own work. And you're going to get people in those clinics that say, what's your day rate? When the clinic's over, I want you to come look at my property end-to-end. -end. You're going to go, it's 1000 bucks. And you know what they're going to say? Okay. And you know why they're going to say okay? Because they've had time to work with you and you've proven your ability with them. This assumes you're good. When you ask somebody for that money that doesn't really know who you are, they're skeptical. When you've spent eight days, or let's say six days total, four half days and four full days with somebody over a month, and you've taught them things they've never heard before, And you've got them on the right track. And they're like, there's a few things I just, I'm not sure that I really need someone to come and help me refine these. There you go. And if you're doing plant propagation and you got your little backyard nursery, when they say, well, where do I get Cornelian cherries? I'm glad you asked. How many do you want? What color? What variety? I can't afford them all this year. I want to plant in the next year. Let's get an order from you right now so I know what to propagate. So going into next year, I'll have your plants for you. See, you've got to treat this like a business. That urban consulting model that I just gave out is probably gold. And it, 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 it's, it's, the, it's the answer to all the people that are struggling to make it right now and can't figure out how to do it. That are sitting in urbans going, how do I get this? You, know, you don't need a lot of money from one person. You need a little money from a lot of people. This is how you make it scalable. And you could do it a lot of ways. You can do it two nights a week if people don't want to give up a whole weekend day. Maybe maybe a lot of people aren't going to want to do four Saturdays. You can make your schedule flexible. You're making a living wage on a short enough hourly time frame that you can adapt to your clients' needs, which is awesome for your clients and for you. And frankly, there's a lot of people out there that if they can pull in about $70,000 a year running clinics like this and pull in maybe another $20,000 with a nursery business, make about $90,000, they're done. They don't want to work anymore. They're happy. That's just like, okay, I'm done now. I think you can do that working four days a week. I don't think you'll do it your first year. 
But I think as you develop, as you establish, that's the, that's the career path for a person doing that. And I think a person doing that model can also make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. There's a lot of stuff that can be spun into that, like spin farming. Like, okay, what if we did this? What if now that I've got all these clinics going, I got all these people with this backyard production, what if I created a co-op so that all of the surplus that my, my clients are now producing in their backyard beyond their own use went into like a farmer's market CSA model that we sold to people that don't want to do the work in their backyard but want food? You start stacking functions. You start stacking revenue models. You start stacking in space and time. Because the, the person that transforms a quarter-acre backyard in five years is going, holy crap, I didn't understand that there would be this much. I can't use all this. And a lot of it they'll give away. But if they had an avenue, you'd say, okay, what we'll do is we'll set up a website for our own little cooperative, and everybody say what you're going to have available every Friday evening. We'll have a person employed to pick it all up and deliver it to customers. We'll take 80%. We'll give you 20%. Because all you're doing is sticking it out in a box and we pick it up. And there's another revenue model. And there's another job. Okay, you get that? There's another job. You don't have to do that. There could be somebody employed part-time. Some mom that wants to be a stay-at-home mom that just needs a couple hundred dollars a month extra to be able to have enough that she doesn't have to go to work anymore. Has a job because somebody created that. People wonder why I'm so into permaculture as a survivalist. Because I want to fix problems, not just go, there they are, let's go hide. I don't know of anything out there with the level of opportunity for entrepreneurship in America today than permaculture. I don't. For the average person that just says, I'll work my ass off, that's willing to learn, that's willing to study, that's willing to make mistakes, that's willing to invest in themselves, because you can be anything from a rancher to a person teaching gardening clinics. But the people teaching gardening clinics right now, the little ladies with their garden clubs and all, they, they don't make 70 grand a year doing that. You could. You have to not apologize for your price either. Yeah, that's how much it is. This is what you get. This is what you get. Package it up, too. You know, do my little thing. So I get these little sticks, these little USB sticks, eight gigs on them. I loaded them up with about six gigs of content. I sold them at Permaculture Voices. Said, rate my presentation. I'm going to sell these. Who's going to buy one? Hands went up everywhere. We sold almost 50 of them. We had 50. I had $250 into them. I got them for $5 a piece. I sold them for 20 bucks. It's a $700, $750 profit. Bam. Okay? Now, if I'm actually charging eight grand, I'll give everybody one. So what if I said in my package, oh, and I have like another 40 hours of education. 40 additional hours of education that every student gets. On a drive. A list of all my suppliers of materials and plants as well. I'll put that on there for you. The, 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 the nurseries that are local, the nurseries you can order from. What, what, just, build, just build this massive database and go. So every student, and not as a graduation present, the day you show up, I'm going to give you this. Oh, well, that's another value add, isn't it? And, oh, we're developing this CSA that only my students will ever be able to participate in as suppliers. <laughs> you start, see, you start selling value instead of just selling yourself. 
So you have to value yourself so you can sell yourself. But you have to build value beyond just your, your, your own individual self-unit. And then think about what I said earlier about the OPL model, the other people's land model, and how we have to develop a situation where it's in the self-interest of all involved to continue the relationship. So if I've now come in and I've helped you change your backyard, you're now feeding your family and your community better than you ever have, and by maintaining my, the relationship with me, you're able to take your surplus and generate some cash, even if it's $100 a month. You know, even if it's like a little bit more in some months and nothing on other months when th things are down. But let's say over the year you make $1,200 five or six years after you met me from the a surplus of your backyard. It's not that much. But I, I think if I gave you a $1,200 check once a month or once a year, I'm sorry, you'd be happy the day I came over. You'd want to maintain the, there's a There's a reason to maintain your relationship with me. And if you sell your house and a person goes, I don't know how to maintain all this. I got this guy that helped me build it. And guess what? He has people that will come manage it for you if you don't want to do it. And it's not it's less than true green Kemlon. And when they take away the stuff you don't want, they'll pay you for it. How's my house looking now? In a competitive seller, a competitive buyer's market. I love all this stuff, but I don't want to take care of it because there's another opportunity. As you build that large base of people that you've established this relationship, you, we're going to have people that are going, I didn't realize it's not that much work, but I'm just really not taking care of it the way I should. And because they're educated, they know what they're supposed to do, they know what they're not doing, and they say, hey, what would it cost to get one of your people in here once a week to tidy things up? Oh, that's 50 bucks a week. Okay, now I got another job. And every time I exceed the capacity of my per employed person to take on another person, I have created another job. And another job, infusing a new economy from the backyards of America. Last thing I want to talk about today, there's this thing in permaculture it's called the transition movement, and it's kind of a gloom and doom thing. It's, it's We're going to run out of oil and fossil fuels, and the world is going to fall apart, and we need to be transitioning so that when that happens, we can feed ourselves and take care of ourselves and live in a low-energy world. Oh, yawn. <laughs> yawn. I'm sorry, yawn. If you're a big believer in that, whatever, yawn. Um, I think transition is gaining a momentum in a different way. The ideas I'm giving you all came from discussions. Now, I'm not saying that they all came from other people's minds. A lot of what I gave you today came from my mind. But in discussing options with people, this is what came out of Permaculture Voices for me. Some of it I didn't even know came out of my brain until today when I sat down to do it. But the level of optimism, entrepreneurship, and success from the people at this place tells me we are on the right track. It tells me that the people that took permaculture workshops and PDCs in the 80s that thought, like Jeff Lawton did, it would be public policy by 1990 were just 30 years early. This is now taking on a life of its own, a momentum of its own. People are starting to see the opportunities in urban farming, supplying high-end restaurants, building niches and fiefdoms on so many levels and so many layers. And they're realizing that like, no matter how many people do it, right now, all it does is create more opportunity. Like The reason you would never worry about somebody else producing pastured lamb, if you were, is if there was more pastured lamb, there would be more customers. The problem is there's not enough. 
to actually build the market with yet. We actually need competition to build our own markets. And that's starting to happen. We have universities, like the University of Missouri, I believe it was, where the guy did a presentation from, trying to develop markets like chestnuts as a new market. So even the universities are going, there's an opportunity here to actually create a market. The little last guys to wake up, okay? I'm telling you. Universities and governmental agencies are the last people that wake up to anything and go, holy crap, there's an opportunity here. When they start waking up, that means that everybody else is already awake. So there's a transitional movement now toward healthier, higher quality food, better land management practices, and that's going to create more and more demand for the results of those systems without enough systems to provide enough product to meet the demand. And I'll tell you, we're 20 years before the demand and the supply even get close because the supply increase will drive the demand increase. And I think that for the, for the next 10 years, not only will the, the demand outstrip supply, but if, if demand goes up by a percent, or if supply goes up by 1%, demand will go up by 25 to 3%. The exposure to the fact that it's even available is going to make people go, I, I didn't know I could get that. I want that. We're out of it already. Oh, crap. How do I get more? Oh, well, you can take orders for next year. What? Next year. Dude, I'm sorry. We're at the end of the season for this stuff. Okay, get me on the list. Okay, you got a waiting list. What? So, yeah, unless one of my people that's already got an order, but you're number two on the waiting list. And let me see if I can find somebody else for you that, that does this. How bad do you want the product now that you can't have it? The most powerful word in marketing is no. Learn that. Anyway, this is what I got from Permaculture Voices. Um, I do hope Diego does Permaculture Voices too. I do hope he at least considers the possibility of doing it somewhere other than the state of California. And I do hope he figures out how to expand it so even more people can come, maybe adds a day, maybe adds some more social interaction. And Diego, if you're listening, bro, if you want to charge a couple hundred bucks more, I don't think that anybody will have a problem with it if you can continue to do what you've done and increase the value. Um, because I spoke, I didn't have to pay to go. Um, I would have no problem as an attendee paying to go. It was that good. And I do hope to see many of you at events like that in the future. And I hope to hear from many of you taking these business ideas and making something out of them. And for those that maybe have been presenting elsewhere or were there that have that monotone thing, please understand I won't put you down. I want people who love what they do to sound like they love what they do. Learn, learn to actually convey what you really feel and you'll be a great teacher and a great presenter. And with that, this has been Jack Spearfield with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Yeah.